I'm Alka Kurian, host of the new podcast, South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington, Bothell, teaching film, literature, gender and human rights. In this first season of South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to new South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. This podcast is based on my interview with Nandita Das. I interviewed her in February, but it took me a long time to get back to it because of the chaos of the coronavirus pandemic. I finally have the interview ready. I'm speaking with India's leading feminist actors and film directors, Nandita Das, winner of France's highest civilian awards, the Chevalier de l'Ordre des Arts et des Lettres, Das has an MA in social work and is an outspoken critic of colorism in India. Das has acted in over 40 films and has made two films, the 2008 Firaq and the 2018 Manto. Das credits her parents, her artist father and writer mother for shaping her worldview. She also considers Saftar Hashmi, the communist playwright and street theater director, as her first socio-political teacher. Das is currently promoting her first book, Manto and I, which is based on the making of her film Manto, a biopic of one of South Asia's leading authors, screenwriters and playwrights, Sadat Hassan Manto. Das joins me from Mumbai. In response to my question, if Manto is still relevant today, this is what Das says. I, in fact, feel that Manto has become more and more relevant, even since the time that I started working on the film, which was 2012, his centenary year. So, um, I think he will be quite timeless and he will be relevant for a long time, especially as we see, uh, you know, right-wing politics increasing, identity politics increasing, censorship being imposed on artists and writers. So, unfortunately, in a way, that he's going to be relevant for a very long time. And um, if he was here today, I think he would be very dismayed, shocked, angry, appalled <laughs> to see that we are still using religious markers to divide ourselves. You know, that's the, it was the religious markers that divided us during partition, when identity politics was played and Hindus and Muslims who had lived together for a very long time were suddenly uh, being uh, you know, called out as being different, as being opposites of each other, as being enemies. And uh, today we are again uh, asking people to define themselves and their citizenship on the basis of their religion. So I think it is, uh, if he was here today, he would have said that we have learned nothing from history that we have learned nothing from this um, horrendous holocaust of our region, the partition where more than 14 million people were displaced and 2 million people were killed. And of course, all the heinous crimes that occur, especially on women's bodies, you know, in times of violence. So, um, yes, I think, and in fact, a lot of people are talking about Manto today. I would want to believe that there is a little contribution of the film as well in bringing Manto to those who do not know, did not, did not know Manto, 
and also to those who knew manto and are getting to know more of it are kind of embracing the idea of manto manto is not just the man or the writer but i think he really represents uh you know represents the idea that's why i often say that i did the film to spread mantoyat and by mantoyat i really mean it is that will to be more courageous to tell the truth to follow your convictions to be free spirited and i think that is and it's there there are mantos uh, even today and they have been in all eras and uh, that's why i've dedicated the book to the mantos of the world because i think uh, we've lost many mantos you know in 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 some ways why have mantos so many mantos have been put behind bars they've been killed manto himself died at 42 and much of the death was caused by just this deep pain that he felt due to partition and because of which he took to alcoholism and he you know was very very deeply depressed felt alone so uh it was i think many of those reasons were there because of which um manto i think will always be relevant while watching the film i experienced a complete suspension of disbelief i was lost in the 1940s bombay and lahore it all looks authentic the location the buildings the vehicles the music the characters their costumes the hairstyle makeup it all looks so real but i'm sure it wasn't easy how did you do it talk about that Yes, I think recreating the times was one of the toughest challenges because uh, there is so much of modern day clutter today that even Bombay as it exists today which has some of those old architecture, those old buildings, those old roads and uh but you know there there are also acs jutting out there are satellite dishes poking out of every uh, terrace there are um, grills have been because of the times that we live in a lot of the old buildings have been grilled the streets are not the same there are hoarding so it's very difficult to recreate it without having to spend huge amount of money and we obviously didn't have that luxury so um Bombay itself was quite difficult uh, also it's very expensive the locations are terribly expensive and uh, so some of the locations that we really liked which are actually owned by parsis lot of the old parsi houses they've managed to keep it you know have managed to restore it and keep it the way it was but they are extremely expensive some of the places that we had chosen had scaffoldings by the time we actually decided to shoot the film so like gateway of india was completely barricaded after the terrorist attack so we couldn't shoot there uh, so that was really one of the toughest part and in terms of lahore i really wanted to shoot in lahore and i was very sad to know that all the international films that includes even indian films that were set in pakistan were never shot there they were invariably shot in india and uh, most of them were either delhi or maler kotla in punjab um and so i was kind of hell bent on wanting to shoot it in lahore to bring out that authenticity and also it's such a beautiful city and uh, i had sort of formed a little crew there and we i was kind of looking forward to that but when we decided to shoot um things had changed and politically as we know we always take two steps forward and probably three steps backwards and uh, this was the time when pakistani actors were not allowed to shoot in india 
and the political situation was very tense we were not getting any uh, insurance for our uh, equipments for our crew and cast so we couldn't go there and then the hunt for find to find the perfect lahore began and i obviously saw the more obvious ones which were delhi and um, malayalkotla but somehow the 40s lahore it didn't quite work and some of these smaller cities and towns have become in fact there's lot more disorganized um, urban you can't even call it planning it's so haphazard and so chaotic that it's really tough to recreate the times so we then looked at bhopal and lucknow and pune and even places in bombay and then finally settled for a small town in gujarat it was called vaso and uh, i just saw photographs of it and uh, we went there and it was kind of frozen in time a uh, lot of the people there were living in the us and uk and uh, therefore they didn't have all that modern day clutter it was fairly as it must have been in the 40s and because there were a lot of uh, muslim karigars with the muslim uh, uh, you know uh, workers who worked with the also architects it had a very interesting architecture which uh, like lahore and many other cities is a mix of hindu and muslim architecture architecture so um it it was very close to how lahore would have been in the 40s in fact uh, one of the persons that who was my go to person somebody called saeed ahmed in lahore i sent him the photographs of that place and asked him if it would work as lahore of the 40s and he in turn sent it send those photographs to a senior architect and said do you think this would do you know where these places are in lahore and that gentleman said oh this is this person's house this is this chowk this roundabout this is this haveli and you know all the places of real lahore he started pointing out so i thought i couldn't have got a better endorsement um of lahore and that's how we narrowed it and zeroed on vaso as lahore and in fact it was really easy to shoot there because the people were super supportive and it was a bit of an irony because firak which was set in gujarat we didn't shoot in gujarat because we thought maybe we would run into some trouble with the uh, with the political uh, scenario at that time which was uh, the government that in some ways we were holding accountable uh, to what had happened the gujarat carnage and the, and it was a bit of an irony that we were recreating pakistan and lahore in gujarat Uh, in fact initially we would try to hide the word lahore and we would say delhi or lucknow and uh, slowly we realized that everyone in the village or in, the, in that small town knew that we were shooting lahore and was super supportive and they knew that this was not uh, this was not a film that was trying to incite trouble or or was being jingoistic or was calling out names it was truly a story about a writer who in fact would be probably the best bridge between india and pakistan and was truly a very humane writer and um, in fact in one of the scenes where nawaz manto is supposed to give this talk to a literary uh, group of people um uh, there i in fact spoke in gujarati to all of them to keep them awake as well because we shot in the middle of the night but i told them who manto was because obviously they didn't know about him so yeah shooting was vaso was a delight um our production design was rita ghosh 
she hadn't really done any production design so she was actually going to be the art director and we had this french production designer called Anne Bissell who had done um, you know films with Woody Allen and with Ray Fine and all of that and uh, but we couldn't afford her as the days came got closer and uh, because for european crew you need to pay them by the week and that was almost impossible and i asked rita to step up to be the production designer but luckily we had done very intensive uh, um research i had had thousands of photographs we had also chosen uh, locations that were absolutely picture perfect in terms of their lights and their switches and their furniture and their doors and windows so when you see the film you almost can't tell is it the location is it the production design or is it the little tweaks that we did with the visual effects of course there were also scenes like the big ship that had to be created you know with visual effects it was impossible to find a ship intact which uh, which had these thousands of people the exodus that happened during partition so that was pretty much recreated by the visual effects and then there were little tweaks we would put a tree somewhere we had to clean up the modern day wires and cables and shutters um we would uh, add we would do multiplication of people for instance even at the dock we couldn't afford 1000 people so we would have like 300 or 350 people and then they were multiplied so when you actually see the scene there were there are many more people but thankfully nobody has been able to tell the difference between you know whether it was location it was production design it was visual effects and that's the way we wanted it and my brief to all departments whether it was costume whether it was production design whether it was uh, even cinematography was that you know we don't want to be seen we just want to do it in a way that nothing really sh- jumps out you know but as an audience all you want people to have that experience of traveling with the actors and experiencing what the characters are experiencing so you know just sort of flow with the story and uh, everything else is just there to create that context where you can forget that you are sitting in the present times and you're just transported to there in a seamless manner so it was the same brief for costumes and for you know makeup there was very minimal makeup we had three different wigs for navaz which not one person could tell so that i think was i was really happy about because i've dreaded as an actor i dread wigs i've worn them myself i when i see them in films you know you always notice it and it kind of takes you out of the film and takes you out of that character so thankfully nobody could see but those were important to see the change in the face our hair is such an important part also of how we look and how hair changes with time and also especially because the four years that i have captured were very tumultuous for manto and uh, you see that change and uh, somebody who was very you know impeccably dressed in good uh, safed uh, in white kurta pajamas and with you know hair properly set and as he as his life changes and as he becomes more and more distraught and pained and less worried about how his hair was or his clothes were that helped in uh, you know creating the character and the transformation so yes i'm i'm glad that uh, we managed to with the crew with the cast we created a context that was true to the times and true to the characters i remember reading in your book that the first floor of the house was the bombay house 
and the ground floor of the house was mm-hmm. a Lahore house. Well, the exterior of the Lahore house was Bombay. So in the beginning, when you see Manto coming down the stairs, and uh, he pushes this little boy who was my son, and who's credited as boy on the bar, he pushes him and he walks out of his locality. Um, that is Bombay, and the house. Of course, you the house changes. and um, the exterior of the ground floor and the interior of that house is lahore so we made it into lakshmi mansion we put you know we changed a few things and inside we completely created it it was just a big hall it was like one of those halls community halls so we had to do the different rooms the kitchen the bathroom like everything was recreated and rita did a great job of that sorry And I said Rita did a great job of that, of you know, completely creating the house. And actually, the Lahore house was bigger than his Bombay house. At the same time, he was less well off. So it's a bit of a challenge to be true to history and not try to give him a very small house to say, oh, he was poorer. But to have a slightly larger house, and you know, you kind of understand that his nephew took care of him. Hamid Jalal, who even brings a shelf, a bookshelf, so that he could keep his books better, but also make it more bare, so that it feels like you know he didn't have much, even though the house was bigger. So what you said about uh, the song "Bol Ke La Wazad" and why, in a way, I chose to end the film with, because for me to do the film was really to respond to what was happening today. That was my first intention that was my real motivation the desire to tell this story came from that then of course as i got to know more and more about manto it you know i realized it was such a fascinating story but initially i just felt like he embodied everything that we were grappling with so uh, that was the reason and it's always a dilemma as to how do you end a film because usually especially more mainstream cinema ends up ending it with a more optimistic note hopeful you know or sometimes if it's a tragic love story then it's kind of a little more tragic uh, you know so you either do a optimistic or a pessimistic it's very binary in that sense but here i felt it was a bit of both i mean you don't want to lose hope even in the worst of times and um, you still don't want to leave the audience with a pessimistic note because if if you become too cynical you don't want to do anything about it so it was more to leave the audience with like a call to action that this must inspire you that this man despite everything you know continues to fight and that's why i didn't i wasn't so interested in his later years like it it wasn't like a tragic hero arc you know where oh my god he succumbs to alcoholism or whatever it was that he was a fighter till the very end the juxtaposition of toba taking and his own life and the question that you also ask the audience is where do you belong are we really going to define ourselves you know with these things like religious uh, religious identity or nationalism or whatever it may be are we going to truly define ourselves only by these narrow definitions these boxes that people are putting us in um also the song is very evocative so the idea was also to leave people with this idea of that speak up you know bol ke la bazaar hai tere bol zubaan tak teri hai it's beautiful nazam and um so that's that was the reason 
I think a female gaze is first of all my own understanding has changed like I said I have often wondered what is it what is a female gaze because most of the films that I grew up watching I didn't grow up watching Bollywood which is in any case a bit unusual in a country like ours because my parents didn't watch films so I just wasn't exposed to it so I started watching films only in college and and with a bunch of friends who all wanted to be filmmakers and only two of them have managed to though but you know they all exposed me to international cinema to world cinema to regional films to film festivals so in some ways my entry or my exposure to films was directly more to independent films and even if you see filmmakers in our country like the indian films that i watched were mostly the stories told by men and they were very sensitive whether it's manal sen whether it's satyajit ray whether it's adur gopalakrishnan you know whether it is sham benegal or they they did tackle issues of women so it kind of even when as an actor i used to think and i have myself done many films that have strong women's characters which have also been directed by men so it's not so again it's not so binary that only if there is a woman director it's going to be more sensitive and men cannot and obviously it's not as simplistic as that yet there is something when i've also worked a lot with women directors two of my first films were with deepa mehta uh, fire and earth then i did um, a marathi film with chitra palekar then i did a kannada film called devari with kavita lankesh so i have worked with women filmmakers as well and i do see there is something different that happens on set which is very intangible almost there is a sense of empathy there is a sense of almost comfort uh, i feel like you can be a little more vulnerable um, there is a kind of a female bonding that happens it's also very emotional and almost physical like you know when you don't do something right or you do something right the kind of hugging and the kind of um, you know the 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 warmth that there is it's quite special so uh, but for a long time i was not very comfortable with this label of being a woman director especially after firaq suddenly i was on these panels and there were so few filmmakers at that time things are already changing the reason we don't have heads of departments or not that many today is because to be a head of a department you have to have a few years of work and you know as things are changing now but in 10 years you're going to see lot more women who are going to be leading their respective departments and are going to tell their stories because there are many more young women who are getting into this field who are going to film schools and uh, you know and it's very very exciting to see that and i'm sort of totally looking forward to that change but during firaq in these panels everybody would ask you so how is it to be a woman filmmaker and you know um and somehow that ba- it it seemed like too much of a label it seemed too much of a baggage to carry and you you feel like i'm just directing i'm not constantly aware i'm a woman filmmaker and i don't want to be treated differently you don't call a male filmmaker male filmmaker etc but um with my own engagement with this issue i think it has changed and i feel that if we constantly are saying as we should that there should be more women filmmakers then we first have to own that label ourselves we have to kind of acknowledge that yes i am a woman filmmaker i'm not only a woman filmmaker i have various identities and i want i you know embrace all these different identities and all of that together makes me 
and you know informs my choices and informs my experiences and all of that but having said that the identity of a woman does take precedence over other identities purely because you're never allowed to forget it you're constantly reminded that you're a woman for better or for worse in the sense that oh how you're looking or how you're behaving what are the words being used for you you know in so many subtle ways uh, there is a kind of a sexism that it's sometimes difficult to combat because it's so subtle that if you keep saying that stop talking to me like this or don't use words like i'm not whining i'm not complaining i'm just asking for what a director ought to be asking or you know and i see that difference because even as an actor when i was with male filmmakers uh, then you know the way they would listen to uh, my male co-actor and the way they would react to let's say my suggestion was very different so you know it was so i think that um all those experiences with which, which you subconsciously uh, notice but you kind of store them at the back of your mind you start putting two and two together and uh, even being at the helm of a project because when you're a director you're really running the show and i was also the producer one of the producers so um in in manto i have to say i faced it less than i faced in firak you know but um times have changed also maybe that was my first film with her own this actress you know she just wants to suddenly direct and all of that but here they were not looking at me is that i i was one film old so maybe i was taken a little more seriously but uh, there were the, often i would be able to feel it and also your radars for sexism kind of grow with time and with age you kind of can immediately make out when people are you know speaking a certain way the tone the way they talk all of that does uh, you can feel it i wanted to talk about your strengths as a female director you're more democratic you're just particularly female sensitive female gaze all of it have together imbued your films with a feminist sensibility even though and would it be fair to say would it be right to say that your films tend to predominantly focus on male characters their tragedies and traumas for example neither firak nor manto are particularly women centric not really not really if you think of a, mm, in one story it's about two friends both are women in the middle class family there is parish ravel and um, you know deepthi navel in that the protagonist really is deepthi navel's character who's a middle class woman who faces that in the upper middle class story it's about a couple who are wanting to leave the city because of a mixed marriage so it's again about the woman as well uh nasiruddin shah's story that was the only one that was about two men one was uh, you know an older man and the other one was his uh, house help and how two muslim men have different uh, world views or you know how they look at everything that's happening around them so i have not consciously tried even in firak i didn't consciously try to keep it very balanced like oh i have to have that many hindu characters that many muslim i want to you know make them that many men that many women for me in firak also the idea was to represent different emotions and different experiences that people go through when an act of violence has seemingly finished you know the obvious violence had had come to an end because the film is really set a month after that but there is a lot that just lingers on 
after an act of violence you know whether it's anger whether it's desire to take revenge whether it's a kind of an emptiness whether it's guilt so it was really about those emotions were the guiding force for me in manto also it was not because he was a man or whatever it was more because just what he represented and and also i feel that women have this extra burden that we only have to tell women's stories we are impacted by everything i mean in fact violence impacts women in more ways than it probably even impacts men because they are at least fighting those battles women are often the passive uh, you know what uh, recipients of that the violence and because they are the primary caregivers they also have to take care of their children through the, through those times also i feel men have controlled the narrative for so long of how they want to represent men and how they want to represent women and i'm not saying it in a good or a bad way in the sense sometimes it has been represented well sometimes in a very um male kind of a way quote unquote you know but um in i feel that it is also what is a female gaze is that you invariably will have you don't have to be conscious of it the fact that i'm a woman and my life experiences have been of a woman it's bound to come in some play with the choices i make so for instance i don't as a as a woman i don't like to see violence and i'm not saying no woman likes it but i i know that is part of my maybe the my feminine side or you know my life experiences that i don't like to see violence and both my films are set in violent times so the choices in which i want to show the horrors of violence because i do want to show that is tr- uh, through you know showing people's vul- vulnerabilities through the fear that they go through you know in manto i've shown the partition through the stories for instance koldo and um, uh, tobatik singh and thanda gosh these are all partition stories that give you a sense of the absurdity of violence how women were used or you know abused in violence and um, and and that how human beings have the best and the worst that comes out during times of violence so these three stories in some ways represent that uh, also how you do your how you um, imagine your women characters so if, if you see in firaq and manto in fact even in manto i've made safia's character far feistier than really she was you know and everyone told me she was this very supporting loving wife great mother soft spoken gentle and i was like come on living with a man like this she must have been angry at some point she must have been frustrated and when her sister told me that she had these rashes uh, just 3 years before manto died and it went completely after a month of his death was a clear indication that she was just absorbing all those that emotional stress and it was kind of manifesting itself in these physical rashes and that kind of gave me a clue and what i really did was just gave a voice to that stress and that anger or that frustration or whatever that she felt i just kind of articulated it's not like i made her feel that and in fact the daughters were very happy with the way it was represented because my worry was that the daughters would feel that they didn't tell me all of this and 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 also scenes with manto and safia were largely fictional Uh, because manto didn't write so much about safia and you know it was a lot of it was sort of imagined conversation between them some of it of course was from uh, some of the other writings but largely it was uh, you know 
imagine conversations and i think i could imagine it only because i had rooted them in facts whatever the family had told me whatever i imagined her to do so even isma chiktai there could have been a whole story about manto and isma chiktai's friendship imagine a friendship in the 40s where a man and a woman are really comrades are uh, you know sort of defending each other in court etc so um even if the characters may not be the protagonist but they are extremely important and i have always felt even before doing manto and even firaq that the female gaze comes not just in making women centric film because i've seen some women centric film that are terribly misogynistic or sexist or definitely not feminist there are also those films but the how you represent the women in the film what is your gaze of that also determines i think also tells you whether there is a female gaze or not that's right also it's about which women are represented and the way you choose to tell their story stories of even those women that occupy Absolutely. marginal spaces in the narrative your film shows a diversity of women there are strong women there are yeah. vulnerable women women that are funny those that are serious exactly. and then there are old women and young women so all of this brings out the complexity and the multi-layeredness of women's struggles yeah the reflection of society because we are not one as women also we are not one type you know and we are so many we are so many people with uh, and yet there is something that binds us that's something that there is a shared experience as well mm, and also because we've just had the shorter end of the stick for so long that because of that also there is a shared experience and which is now kind of changing and therefore there is more variety in some sense you know emerging and that needs to be represented in films ab kya bataun main tere milne se kya mila irfan gham hua mujhe dil ka pata mila ab kya bataun ab kya bataun you also refer in your book to uh, the existence of gaps in the feminist movement in its uh, refusal to engage with men uh, men as you put it um and i quote um, men have been left behind within their archaic patriarchal mold and you also say that that's the reason why you needed to showcase the life of manto as he was a feminist well i don't think it's refusal as much it's just that i can quite understand that because some of my older feminist friends who were pioneers in their field and who kind of have you know had a big influence on me uh, aruna roy kamla bhaseen there are many women in the country who have really kind of impacted me as well they had a bigger battle to get the women out to make them feel confident to you know give them the space to question so a lot of the work happened with women but in the process what happened that men were where they were and women have kind of begun to ask a lot more questions and begun to change the status quo but because we live in a society where there are men and women that the gap has kind of increased uh, you know recently uh, uh, a right wing uh, not a minister but an important figure said that there are more divorces because of some crazy reason like because there's too much education women are getting to be too bold you know and he meant it in a negative sense but he didn't think that it's because women are questioning the institution of marriage they're questioning the role that they have been playing for so long so i think uh, the female gaze is a complex thing as well and uh, 
female representation is a complex thing because sometimes we are burdened by always making them very strong i know that so many scripts come to me and when they say oh this you will love this because it's a very feminist role and feminist role meant that killing the villain at the end and i would say hello this is not you know this is not how i see feminism or this is not this is not the kind of role that i would want to do i don't see that as a solution at all so uh, there is a very narrow understanding especially in countries like ours about what feminism is and sometimes it is almost seen as a bad word like you know i've been told so many times oh stop being a feminist you know as if it's it's a gali it's a abuse <laughs> yeah and women are referred to as feminazis yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and the interesting thing is that if you look at all the protests that are taking place across the world these days it's the women that are at the forefront of these movements you know women are taking charge how do you think that's happening what's making it happen yeah women's freedom to protest you know women freedom to speak up or to take the lead and many non-violent movements across the world have been done even in africa and other parts of the world by women so it's no surprise in a way but if you see today even in students women are really taking the lead even in all these protests and even sports all the padma awards have been won this year by women sports so i think something is shifting as it should have you know so but it's still a long way to go <laughs> i'd like to move on to the question of censorship the international film festival of india has called manto international the film was banned in pakistan so faced with this kind of response you have said well given today's digital connectivity censoring films is a farce so talk about how it was making a film not only on a muslim writer but also on someone who chooses in particular to tear open the carcass of civility that we all inhabit something that he did both in terms of language and themes of his writing mm no of course i mean the first thing the first attack that i got whether from trolls or even questions was you know why on a muslim writer your film firaq was also about a muslim issue why on a pakistani writer and uh, you know i i feel that that would be a huge disservice to manto to divide him or to label him in terms of religion or nationality because he defied both with what he believed in and through his writings uh, he was a non practicing muslim to begin with in fact i wanted to do um, i wanted to set a scene in lahore in this beautiful mosque called the wazir khan mosque and his daughter said but he never went to a mosque and i was like come on he must have gone once or twice with his wife you know just to see it's such a beautiful mosque they were like no we have never heard him about any story of him going to a mosque so you know he was he didn't really wear his religion on his sleeves for sure we we are born in religions like i am born in a hindu family but i don't practice any religion so it doesn't you know that's not the identity you can't just you know enforce that identity on to me because i don't i don't identify myself as that um also in terms of nationality because three fourth of his life he was in india he loved the city of bombay this is where he felt much at home and you know this is where he got the respect and the work and his friends and that's what he identified most with that's why today you have collections of bombay stories and he used to say mai chalta phirta bombay hu i'm a walking talking bombay so for someone like that to kind of narrow it but you know what 
I think questions are always good. Like when people ask me those questions, it also gives me an opportunity to tell them all this, so that they can think beyond the rhetoric and you know, not the same kind of labeling that we do. It allows us to engage and allows us to talk about issues that otherwise don't come up. So in many ways, uh, doing this film and just interacting with a host of different people, I have met. people who are completely have right wing politics who have come and told me about that and still feel uh, impacted by manto so they may not even know they may be able to separate manto and their politics but slowly it is impacting and i think that's what films do they very slowly subliminally go into our subconscious impacting our responses you know creating that kind of empathy so when you if a film is able to create even a little empathy for the other then i think that's all a film really can do it can create revolutions at the end of the day so yeah <laughs> and yet despite the significance of films such as manto something that is really the need of the hour it's not easy for independent filmmakers to make films on these themes such films are defined as niche or festival films they don't get adequate marketing and yes. distribution support for example so it's really difficult so how do you think one can change the situation mm-hmm. and also what value do you think digital platforms such as netflix or amazon bring well it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation you know the producers don't want to put their money in sort of what we call different stories told differently because they feel the audiences are not really ready for it or they are not asking for it and the audience is say well this is what the filmmakers give us so what do we do films like manto if they are going to be screened at you know 9 am in the morning 11 pm at night in a far off theater you know even if i'm a manto kind of an audience i'm not going to go all that way or i'm not going to wake up at 9 when i have to send my son to school or whatever so they uh, it is tough my point was that even if you call it a niche film it probably is a niche film i don't watch uh you know mainstream cinema so i don't know how far out it's there but it even for the niche film in terms of percentage it might be small but in terms of actual numbers there are enough people who would want to watch uh, such films and it doesn't reach them that is the problem and often times the marketing is also not really geared to reach them so but this is a struggle everywhere in the world for every one such film that becomes a success there are 100 others that have been killed you know and there are 100 other scripts that never even get made into a film so one just i guess has to be thankful for the fact that at least this film got made you know because at least it tri- it's triggering conversations people through the, for me art has always been a means to an end so the fact that this film allows me to talk about everything that's happening today allows me to talk about the humanity that we need to invoke allows me to talk about censorship about the struggles of freedom of expression about women about writers about the role of art that for me that in itself is uh, rewarding in some sense and a uh, lot of the feedback that i've got on the film has never been just that i like it or i don't like it people are really sharing their thoughts around it and how they feel and you know it's it's the in fact the response has been hugely overwhelming yes less number of people have seen it but now that it's on netflix i still get people's response from some part of the world somebody is watching it you know every single day almost 
so that's the good part about the digital medium but having said that as a filmmaker you know you work so hard at every nuance of the film and you want people to come and watch it in the big theater in that dark space where it's a collective experience it's a personal experience and that unfortunately is now getting limited to only big action film or big multi star or whatever you know like really big budget films and that is a pity because which means that these other stories the more intimate stories or stories that are not catering to maybe a sort of a mass audience is not going to be watched and also sometimes the label of masses and classes is also artificial because a good film actually should touch the heart and the head almost simultaneously without you having to separate them and uh, i have had those kind of reactions from many people who are not the typical manto audience or who are not intellectuals or who are not you know hugely educated and you don't need all of that you know if a film should speak to you at a human level i mean that's what really matters but i think my own baggage there's a perception about me and that sometimes comes in the way also of the film people assume that it's going to be like a difficult you know intellectual film and it's going to be maybe something might be preachy or i don't know whatever baggage i carry but uh, because of my stands in the public space about various issues people just think it's probably going to be an issue based film but if you see both the films are actually about human beings and you know their internal dilemmas and and those are very those people resonate with those let's talk a little bit about the writing of your book manto and i you said that it took you way longer than you'd anticipated so how was the book different to the making of the film from the written word ie manto's own written word to the film your film manto and back to the written word in your own book manto and i talk about the various translations i've read a lot uh, i had to read a lot first in translations in english translations and i realized english translations weren't really doing justice to much of his writing because many of those translations were done uh, years ago and uh, you know now there are in fact more and more translations coming up which is really good so i started reading in devnagri and it's not easy because we don't these days end up reading anything in any other language other than english and so it was a bit of a struggle also he while his language is very accessible there are also some very difficult urdu words and there aren't that many good dictionaries i realized that even on the internet and so you know i really struggled with the language per se for a longish time but because you kind of get the essence of the story it was more about what i want from where so even the dialogues in the film have been taken from various places so something from a story has been put into his uh, you know some other scene that is completely not connected so a lot of the dialogues especially not just of manto but of other characters are also from his own writings i would say almost 80% is his own writings so i wanted to be as true to that and also he provided me with so much material because he was so prolific he wrote so much so it just made it easier um then to have this film which took like 7 years from its very inception which was 2012 mid year to 2019 which is uh, 2018 september the film got released then i traveled to various parts of the country and world sharing the film sharing the stories 
I went to various uh, campuses in UK and the US and you know shared it at Harvard and Tufts and you know Stanford and Brown and Yale and all of that in in England I also shared it at Oxford and LSE etc so after so it was really a 7 year experience and I think while I had answered many questions there were still many stories that were kind of unshared or you know so it was not just cathartic but for me it was also that I didn't only want to share the creative journey the the socio political reasons why I even did the film had a role to play throughout that throughout the journey of the film in because every time you talk about it you could never separate the it wasn't a pure art it wasn't a pure film the film had to be connected to everything that was happening around us and um, so that and my own emotional journey what was it to be a mother while doing the film because my son was uh, what was he he was like 2 years old when i started with it you know so and he was 8 years old so his own journey like it it was almost like manto and my son were kind of growing parallelly and you know what was what was the impact of that in my own understanding how did i learn to let go because there was so much material and i had to finally sieve out and just take out very little for a 2 hour film there's only that much you can say so it was just so much of stuff that i just felt like i needed to chronicle this journey and that's how the book and the book is as you've read it it's a very stream of consciousness it's almost like how i'm talking to you it just takes you through that whole journey um and uh, and before i knew it was done and everyone said my god that's really quick you just finished the film and you're done with the book but uh, i thought it would be simpler because i thought i'll just collate all my interviews i have all these lovely photographs that were not used by the marketing team i'm just going to put them together i'm going to put some manto quotes because uh, you know every time i've talked about the film and the book i've talked more about manto people have also asked me more about manto and i've ended up talking more about manto and neither of us have complained and that's and in some sense i see that as a strength because it it's like discovering a person who's allowing you to share what you feel and what more beautiful can happen than the fact that it resonates so deeply and um, yeah so that's why uh for for me the book was a kind of a you know i felt that my journey was now complete i had taken it all out now i can move to something else and i which i am although it's still lingering on like this interview um, but uh, also mantra for me because it's a it's a thought it's it's something that it's always going to be kind of my north star you know my guiding force and it's really interesting that in your book you refer to yourself as manto's fourth daughter <laughs> because your name yeah. starts with the letter n yeah it's in the letter n <laughs> yeah because all his three daughters are named with an n and i was like oh nothing is random in life <laughs> you know <laughs> it is it is funny that's right there's nothing random in the world well thank you so much nandita for talking with me no, it's been a pleasure and a great honor I've loved the films in which you've acted. Loved both the films that you've made. And now reading your book Manto and I has given me great insights into your journey of making the film and into yourself mm, as a woman sure. director, as an activist, as a mother, and finally into your personal philosophy. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. This was a very in-depth 
interview and it's so it's such a pleasure to talk to someone who's actually you know read everything and knows about it and is thoughtful because that doesn't often happen and so yeah thank you bol ke lab azad hai tere bol tu bab tak teri hai